this particular Sunday um, is a difficult passage. It's a, a repulsive act that takes place. Uh, I didn't have Emily read it all, so it seemed a little maybe odd. Why did we just read that part? It's a segue in where we're going. There is a rape that we're going to look at, uh, a gang rape, actually. So it's a very sober uh, reality to look at and stare in the scriptures. And um, there we... Uh, I do hope that you would be encouraged that we do preach the whole council of scriptures here at Grace Church, and uh, and that's very important. And that we, um, and the Bible, with all of its hopes and promises and story of God's hope that's in it in Christ, it's also very realistic and honest about the sin and the polygamy that was mentioned here that we see in Africa still today was true of Abraham and I, Abraham and and many of the patriarchs of the Bible. Their sin was present. So the Bible doesn't um, sugarcoat anything. It's not the South where we act like nothing's wrong. The Bible lets you see the depth of sin and man and what they're like. So we're going to see that today. And um, also the Bible, the good news about that is that the Bible really is trying to teach you that there's no hero in man. There's only one king who's the true hero. And don't look to men to be your heroes. And so we've looked at Samson and what a buffoon he was. And so as we're in Judges, we've looked at all the judges. And none of them are uh, the good leader that we all need. Uh, we're in the last five chapters of, um, of uh, Judges, which it ends with 12 Judges. A Judges was a military uh, leader who rescued God's people. You may have heard of Samson and Deborah, some of the famous leaders um, in the Bible. But these last five chapters are, are not about any of the Judges. It's just a glimpse into the story and the place where God's people have gone, how far they've gone away from God and how really heinous their lives are. As a matter of fact, last week we looked at one of those uh, stories, and we're looking at the story today with another Levite priest. Uh, but ironically, uh, as there's been this spiral in Judges, and I think the point of the author of Judges is trying to let us spiral and see how far away and what it was like to live without God as king, how far they had left God. Uh, these particular instances happen actually early in the, in the chronological story. And so don't think of them being the last straw. They actually, this was what was going on, and this is why the judges were so bad and why God's people were. These actual instances happened earlier in the story of Judges. But the author wants us to see sort of here's how far gone they were, and this is where we find ourselves. So um, this is what it means when you live. This is where you can go and where things end up when there is no king, meaning the king, the true king God, is not the king you submit to, and this is where it winds up. And, um, and this is what happens. And so this morning, I'm going to look at the, the, particularly I believe these passages highlight the exploitation of women. To a great degree, the last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21 of Judges do that. But I want to highlight it, uh, and we're going to look at one instance that together, but sort of speak to the whole. I want to say uh, a few things about that and, and set up. One is that... Um, it doesn't mean that men are the worst of sinners, or the only sinners. Females and males are sinners. But this window is into the male, one of the male problems. One of the male, it lets us see his struggle and the exploitation of women, how they're treated, and culturally what's going on. So uh, it's about brokenness and human beings being broken and, um, and even evil and how far they can go. Uh, the reality is, is that everyone is sexually broken. Uh, I know that. I know that you're sexually broken, every one of you because the Bible tells me so. And we're broken people because of sin and in our world. And at various degrees, we have that. And, uh, and so they were culturally broken and uh, uh, sexually and in exploitation of women, so are we. And culturally and as individuals, so are we. 
And that's a reality of today. Um, just, this is not about pornography, but just to tell you, right now in the world, more people view internet pornography every month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. In 2016, 4.6 billion hours of pornography was looked at on just one of the more than 42 million porn websites in the world. That's equivalent, the amount of time is equivalent to 524,000 years spent watching porn in one year. So we're broken. So is the world today. And so the Bible lets us see it in this time, in this place, and how far they had gone. And so we're broken individuals. And so as, as I share that and even that statistic, um, it's not to say that people can't be healed sexually and in their brokenness as well. If I forget to say that, this is going to be a very dark time. I won't have any jokes. I won't have any light moments as I normally do. It'll just be heavy. As a matter of fact, I don't even know how we're supposed to relate as we walk out today. I've been praying for that. It may feel a little awkward to see the depth of sin. Um, but God does heal. And when the king is working in our life, so many of us, are, we're all healing. We're all being healed in various degrees and ways. The Bible, actually, sex is a thing given to God's people as a great gift and to human beings in his way and shape. And the Bible, even the Song of Solomon, tells how it can greatly be enjoyed. But what we're seeing today is the brokenness of it and its destruction when it functions outside of a king. So um, we're just going to look right at it and pray the Lord will deal with us. I don't even have an outline. It felt stupid to come up with an outline. Here's three things to learn. I don't know. It just didn't seem to meet the moment. So can I pray and we'll walk through the passage. Father, would you help us as we look at this um, really heinous act and Holy Spirit, we need help for you to illuminate the scriptures. I need your help. Um, so God, I do just cry out and, and just say that you'd help us to see accurately. And um, Father, I'm tempted to want to figure out a way to make lemonade out of lemons without looking at just the depth and the depravity of who we are apart from you. So help us to Help us to stay the course. Guide us, God. And um, protect us and help us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, we're just going to walk through the passage. and I'm going to walk through to you. If you'll see there, um, when we read this morning, I, didn't, I don't have this for you, but I read the last verse of chapter 18, which said that Micah had set carved up images and he had, um, and had made a carved image. Our story previously, he had made a carved image of God and placed it, and it tells us in verse 31 when we read this morning that, that the image remained there as long as the temple was in Shiloh. So that's as our segue into this is that the previous Levite priest has made a carved image of God. We looked at that last week and how self-centered and syncretism and all the superstitions of the day. The last words is a carved image. And then the next words in verse 1, it says, and in those days there was no king in Israel. That's where we are, no king in Israel. And so that ought to tell you uh, those two ideas, that there's a carved image 
to heck with God, sitting in the temple as long as there, and everybody's doing what's right in their own sight. The last verse, is, I don't have it up front for you, but the last verse um, of uh, the last verse of the whole book of Judges, verse tw- chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own wise. So here we have from 19 to 21, at the end of 21, in here you have a carved image, and they're living as if there's no king. And the summary verse of the whole book at the very end tells that they did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. So here's what you should conclude, that everything in between, here and there, 31 and here, is bad. There's nothing good. So if you think and you see some words that are like, oh, and he spoke kindly to his wife, don't conclude that that's good. That would be like a serial killer who has stolen a person driving down the road and he pulls over to give them some food while he, and so he didn't starve them before he killed them. The context is that of bad. It really is. And I read many commentators this week and I just got angry that they tried to say, this is nice and good. It's not. I'm telling you as your pastor, the context, I think, of this book is that everything between 1831 and here is a bad deal, and don't read anything good into it. Even when it gets to the Civil War that we're not about, and Kevin will see that next week, it's just not good. I think that's what the author wants you to know, the last words of that. So here we go. And so notice that a Levite, in those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country. So this is the second story. We have two stories at the end. The first story was about a Levite coming from Ephraim. The second story is about a, a Levite. Why a Levite? Why do we have two stories about Levites here at the end? When things are really, really bad. I think it's for this reason. The Levites were the clergy. That's what the tribe, one of the 12 tribes, their job was to be the clergy of God's people. The church is really bad. That's the point. The sin and the decrepitness of the people and all their views has crept into the church. You can't tell the difference between the church and the people. The Levites, that's why it's a story of a Levite. Notice what he did. He got a concubine. <laughs> He's going around. He took her. All right, a concubine. What was a concubine? Why this word? The concubine was, uh, what were concubines? Concubines were second-rate wives. So you could have polygamy and have wives, and the wives, the difference between having a wife and a concubine, the wife actually could receive, and her children could receive part of the inheritance of the husband or the world, uh, of the uh, patriarch of that day. But a concubine was just for sex only. She could, her and her children could not receive any benefit. So what he's doing is he's taking a concubine, and he just needs, he wants to take sex with him everywhere he goes. That's what he's doing. <coughs> and then it says his concubine, verse 2, was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him into her father's house. She's from Bethlehem. He's where he found her. He takes her away. She runs back to Bethlehem. It says that she was unfaithful to him. In the Hebrew, this word, you, there's multiple translations of this particular word, the Hebrew. It could mean that she was adulterous. It could mean that she actually was disgusted and despised him. I think when you look at the context of the verse, this is all negative. Don't shift it to her that she's done something wrong. She disgusted. She is, dis- despises this man, and she runs away, and she goes to the only place she can go, and she runs back home. That's where she is. And so that's what the word, I think, means. It's read negatively. She's running home. Notice that he doesn't go for four months. I don't know why he doesn't wait, he wait four months. But what I think this is really going on here is that this is about property. He's going to go chase down his property because men in this culture and women in this culture, and when, when any, any God, even among God's people, women were primarily viewed as, as exchange of property. She moves from this household under this man's rule to this one. 
He's lost property. He's lost what he needs. I don't know why he waits four months. Some people, I think, in error say she was letting her cool off and working things out. That's not it. There's just no way. When you see the way he treats her later, don't think he loves her. He loves what she can do for him, maybe. His way in a twisted way. But she runs away. Um, one commentator said this, as his concubine whored for him, he was pimping her out until she got fed up with him and fled to her father. The Levite then had to sweet talk her in returning with him. If this is correct, then the story begins with a girl sexually exploited by her own husband from verse 2. I mean, the point is, the culture is so bad, everything's on the table that could have been happening to her at this point, including from him. Verse 3, then her husband arose and went with her and kindly to her and bring her back. I just spoke to that, and that's negative. And, um, and so he brought, uh, he had his, him and his servant and a couple of donkeys, and he goes up to go after her. And he comes to this place um, <coughs> where he goes to get her, and this is what Emily read for us. And um, And you notice there in verse 3, it says, And when the the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Why was he excited to see the the Levite who had taken his daughter? Um, Well, notice that there's not much, it says that she sees him first. There's not much reunion or happiness. It doesn't tell us. She goes, hey, it's great to see you. And you go to this unusual exchange where he stays for a few days and leaves and stays for a few days and leaves. And, or, and then finally, he stays and this hospitality thing goes on with her dad. Um, the consequences of the law for her leaving her husband, the Levite, was death. So he could be just trying to save her life, the father is, trying to appease him and to save her life. Secondly, he could be trying to... Um, uh, some think that because he could have been just like the rest of the culture, he actually had been slaving her out, and he could have been using her as well. And this is a, an exchange, and he is worried that maybe he's going to have to give his money back or whatever has happened or transpired. I don't know. He stays for a few days, and then he leaves. But I don't think you should think positively about this exchange. And uh, again, based upon the context of the gun. Now, one thing to m- note is that while she is there, and uh, in verse 10, um, there's, uh, finishing to 10 when they finally leave, there's no mention of the relationship or restoration that takes place with the woman. She has no voice. By, remember that. She doesn't speak throughout this. She has no voice. Throughout the whole thing, she never has a voice. So he takes his, uh, takes his concubine and they leave. They finally leave. They have a male servant who's walking with them. Verses 11 through 15, when we get there, they've come to this first city. They come to Jerusalem. So they're traveling from Bethlehem, probably six miles. They get to Jerusalem. He's like, hey, we can stay here. His servant said, I think we should stay here. The, uh, the Levite says, no, I don't think it's safe. He doesn't think they can stay there. So he's like, I want to go on to a Benjamite city, Gibeah. Let's move on and keep going. So they keep going. Um, uh, we still don't hear from the concubine to speak. We don't see it, hear her to speak. So then they go to Gibeah, this city called Gibeah. And um, this is where the story picks up in verse 16. And you didn't 
you don't know. But here's in verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at the evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the home square city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So what happened was, they get to Gibeah, and they just camp out in the middle of the city. They have no place to stay. There were some hospitality things, and Levites actually are supposed to be taken in from the people, if you're a Levite, for hospitality if they needed a place to stay. They're sitting there. This guy walks through and says, Hey, man, and look what happens when he gets down to verse uh, 20. He says, And the old man said, Peace be with you. I will care for your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. He's like, Basically, listen, he knows it's not a good deal for you to stay here tonight. I'll take you in. So he takes him into their house. Uh, he knows that this place, Gibeah, is a bad place. And this is Benjamites, by the way. These are God's people. These are a tribe of God. So in verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, here's where it gets really rough. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out this man who came into your house that we may know him. So these group of men come around the house and surround it, and they want to have sex with the man, the Levite, Who's come in there? And they demand him to send them out. So, and the man, the master of the house, this host who's taken them in, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So he knows you what you want to do to him is vile. Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against the man, do not do this outrageous thing. Do you see the... <laughs> how terrible that is. Don't do the outrageous thing to him. Do it to them. And he offers his own daughter, and then he also offers the Levite's concubine. Now think about that. It's like a fish in water. The exploitation of women was so normal that he didn't even have to think about offering or ask, hey, can I offer your concubine? This was just the way. Women are property. They don't matter. We'll hand them over to you. The outrageous thing would be for you to do something harmful to the man. He, it's his idea as a dad. It's his idea as a man to do this to them. It's protecting the men, not the women. Verse 25, but the men would not listen. This is the men outside. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Verse 27, her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Now verse 27, don't listen to that. The Levite wakes up in verse 27. And the, and the concubine is dead at his feet. It tells us he was asleep. Now, I thought when I first read it, maybe he's asleep because the host did all this without him knowing. And he woke up and came into it. But the text doesn't say that. The text actually tells us that in verse 25, the man seized his concubine. 
That word in the Hebrew there is he bound and restrained and to conquer. He grabbed her with fury and with conquering and took her. He didn't go. So not only did he sleep, it tells us he sleep. He didn't sleep not knowing. He did it. He took her out. He put her before those men, and he slept all night. He had, a, I guess, a clean conscience. Do you see that? She's still not speaking. The author makes sure that we don't even get to hear her cries for please. I think that's the point. She has no voice. And they knew her. That's the biblical language for sex. And abused her, verse 25, all night until the morning. As the dawn began to break. That's hours. We don't know how many men... I do just want to say what should have done. What should they have done? They should have fought. They should have said, no way. They should have laid down their lives and said, I'll protect her. Over my dead body, will you come into this place? That's what a man would have done. They're boys. This is a country of boys who think for themselves. It's a bunch of boys gathering around who have man bodies and power and religion, but they let their cravings and their emotions and their sexual drives do everything. It's just a bunch of boys enslaving the women. Worse. Verse 28. He said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer, and then he just put her on the donkey. And the man rose up and went away to his home. No weeping. No crying. No. Oh no, what's happened to her? She's dead. So when he gets back in verse 29, he entered his house. And he took a knife and he told of his concubine and he divided her up limb by limb into twelve pieces, and he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who said it, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that people of Israel came out to the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it and take counsel and speak. So, if you really get into the story, it's crazy. I mean, I, I couldn't help but think about <laughs> the dignity of a body and the dignity of a person. We just buried someone here, one of our members here. There's no dignity held to her. There's none of that. I think about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they wept over Jesus' body. 
What a model. We weep. He was a king, but they nurtured her. She gets nothing. He cuts her into 12 pieces, his 12 tribes. He's leveraging her for him to get revenge because he's lost his property. He's a little boy, and he's mad. He takes her 12 parts of the body, mails them to the 12 tribes, or sends them out. I guess they have the mail service then. He sends it out to them and creates a civil war. And the 11 of the 12 tribes actually attack the Benjamites. And I'm, I'm really shrinking this story down. But the 11 come to the 12. When he stands up before the 11 tribes and they're united now, they've never been united, now they're united, supposedly to save this one woman out of what they've done to her, he tells a lie about what happened. He doesn't mention all that he did and what he was guilty of. He acts like they were going to kill him. They just wanted to have sexual relations with him. He stands up and lies as he tells the tribes about it. That's what this Levite clergy does. Then they go conquer the Benjamites, and they send it eventually. They conquer them, and they actually, God's people, the 11, they actually kill the children, men, and women. They're left with 600 men. That's all that's left. It takes them a while to kill the Benjamites, but they do. They put up a good fight. God's sort of talking to them. They're seeking God, but they want God to help them, just get what they want. They, uh, They get to the end. There's 600 men, And it seems like they're doing this noble thing to deal with these people who treated this woman badly or killed her. They get to the end, there's 600 men left. You know what? All of a sudden, the 11 tribes feel bad, and they're like, hey, man, we feel bad, God, that what if we lose the Benjamites? They're one of us. We won't be 12 of us anymore. We can't have them be destroyed. They need women now so they can populate the earth again and grow. So you know what they do? They go to a little city. They didn't come help them in the war, and they go kill everyone and exploit, bring 400 virgins to give to them just to give them women and exploit women again, exploit 400 in order to bring to these 600 men. They bring them to these 600 men and say, hey, here you go. We just took these women. Property again, as if everybody's noble and they're fighting wars for noble reasons. And then they get to the end and they go, oh, there's 200 of you left. Wow, there's 600. We need 600 women. Well, where are we going to get the five last 200 for you of 600 men? What are we going to do? They go, oh, here's what you do. Go down to Shiloh, to the temple, and watch for the women who come out of there, and you all take them for yourselves, and now Benjamins, the Benjamites will be okay. That's what they do. The whole story is terrible, and women are viewed as property, and... Wow, it's just bad. It never really changes. And it finishes with every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. So how should we respond to this passage? What do we respond? Here's the first thing that you and I should do. You and I should mourn and weep just over the depth of sin and how bad things are. That sin is causing horrible things to happen, and we should weep. As a matter of fact, you should weep over this unnamed woman who was a real person. Something horrible happened to her. She was a soul. She was a real person. You and I should weep and mourn. And if anything's ever happened to anyone like this that you know or around or you, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've encountered this broken world in that way and something like this has happened to you. And any degree, any spectrum, like it happened to this young woman, this concubine. And I would say that Jesus weeps over you and with you over that as well. He weeps. So I didn't know what to do. Part of us, that's probably, should we, it'd be fine to leave a service weeping. 
We're scared to lament sometimes. Just that things just stink sometimes. I think another response where I've landed, I don't know if I'll, I have three for you. The second response is this. This is a beautiful question, not a beautiful, a right question. It's nothing beautiful about it. We have to ask this question. Are there ways in which we listen to our culture about how we should view, either treat or look at women? In what way are we in danger of treating women as property or things? So when you fornicate and do sex outside of marriage, you are king of your own life and you have decided I want sex for me and for my pleasures. And so it, it, you're just exploiting because you're not doing it the way, uh, have, operating with sex within the bounds of God. When you click on anything pornographically or look at things or objectify, you contribute to the enslaving and the objectifying of women and men. So I think we have to ask that question. It's an important one. It's subtle how much we probably do it. But do we objectify? And then verse 3, or no, the third application is this. Um, we must uh, see, or com- we must compare Sodom and Gibeah. Hmm. That seems like an odd application. I think this is the other application from the passage. When you were reading this story, when we were reading this story, it echoes crazily. That's not a word. But it, it echoes and sounds just like the story of Lot and Aaron and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's unbelievable how many of the words are the same. I think the author of this book and the Holy Spirit and the time wants us to be mindful of something, the worst things, that one of the worst things that happened, a story, a prominent story in the Old Testament, which there was a, these two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were so given over sexually and so evil that God destroys them off the map. And they were uh, non-Jews. They were not God's people. And God destroys them. And there was an incident where Lot was in, in the city and a group of men come and look. So look, I have the comparison here for you. You can see. You can see the phrases that from the Genesis 19 where it talks about Sodom, Gomorrah, and Gibeah, there's a similarity. Both men in the city, the same phrase is used gather, they surround a house. That's what happens. They surround Lot in the house where they are. Both wanted to have sexual relations with the male visitors. That's what the men want to do. You think that these are comparable stories? Both hosts go out and plead and call out the wickedness and both offer their daughters. In both stories, they offer their daughters and they offer, young, they offer women to appease them. And both, in both places, in Judges 19, 24, behold, they're my virgin daughter, and um, uh, you can violate them, you can do with them as you please. That language is in both, do with them as you please. So I don't think it's a stretch that Judges is trying to let us see Sodom and Gomorrah. The same phrases are all there. So why? Why was that given? Well, here's the biggest difference between the two cities. One was Gentiles and not God's people. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. And Gibeah 
was God's people. God's people are just as evil as the Gentiles. Paul was trying to help address that with his people in Romans. In Romans 3, 19 through 18, Paul said, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Meaning, let's substitute church, Christians. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There was a civil war after this, by the way. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no difference. But the point, I think, of this is to say, there's no difference between God's people and the Sodom and Gomorrah and the Gentiles. Those are not God's people. That's one of the biggest points. Let me just press it here. I know part of you are thinking, well, I'm not done as bad as this. Listen, what we believe about sin is, is not that all of us are as sinful as we can be, but we believe that the sin, the depravity of a person, is this, that there's not a single part of your soul or your life or your body or anything about you that sin has not touched. And that if it was left unfettered, it would go all the way. Your lustful thought that maybe ends with just the thought, if left unfettered with no king, its desire is to go all the way. It's where it wants to go, to rape and that. That's what sin does. And by the way, all sin, sin and sin alone, sin, one sin, if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And so let me just ask this one. Do you think, do we actually think, this isn't Christianity, but this is what we're led to think. We think, do you think that God only saves good people and punishes bad people? Is that what you think? He doesn't. He only saves bad people because that's what we are. Do we think that he personally or... We, do, we, do we think that these men can be forgiven? I guess they can. It seems heinous. But it, you can be forgiven. There is no sin beyond that can, the forgiveness of God, no matter how heinous it is. These people, the, God's people were the, Kevin said it this week to me. He said they were the stewards. At this point, they're the only people who have God's, God's people, the 12 tribes, were the only people who had the penit- who understood the idea of being image bearers of God. They're the only ones who, who actually, they're the only ones who have the, the Ten Commandments revealed to them. They're the ones that have been delivered out of the Exodus. They've seen God's power. God has handed to them his character to seeing the tablets. The covenant is, the, the Ark of the Covenant is actually with them in chapter 21. They've been handed that, and yet they're no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the point. The only difference between us, well, the only difference between God's people, the 12 tribes, and the, and the Gentiles, is God's faithfulness. For some reason, he's gracious to them. They didn't deserve it. Now, I don't know if all these people are true followers inwardly, 
were they believers? But the point what God is demonstrating to us, I think, is this, is that that's true of us. The only difference between us and the world is that God has been gracious to us. That's the only difference. And he does heal our brokenness. And we have, some, we have hope, great hope. And here's the reality, too. This is what I hope lands on you this morning. So if I'm just like them, and the only thing that is different between me is he's faithful and he's gracious and he loves me, his love is way more profound and deeper than I ever thought. We have all the more reason to be thankful for all there is no one good. It is, the, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. The sins of those belong to God, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. Dan Ortland. Dane Ortland. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake, everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Let me read that again. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ, the good king, the king that we should submit to, who's worth submitting to, only when we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake, everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven, and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserved. So, let's pray. Father, would you... Um, I want to pray for us as a church right now as we deal with something so heavy. I pray that you would give, you would give us room, give us the room to respond in all the different ways we may be responding now. Would you be with each of us? Father, there could be anger, there could be shame, there could be brokenness, there could be maybe some hopefulness, maybe even just heaviness, whatever it may be. We need great help, God, to know how to respond wisely and well to this. Would you be with us? Would you help us to Would you help us to be a church that really believes that we're not better than the world? And that if we ever have changed or anything good has happened in us, it's because you as the king have have started working and ruling in our lives. And God, we do, would you help us to have compassionate hearts that break over the sin of this world and how sad it is, God. 
that women are raped and treated as nothing. It was in your providence that Robert would even mention the polygamy that my brother in Tanzania had to break away from. Would you help us to just have compassion and weep and not be scared to sit and see how dark things can be? But would you also simultaneously keep us and grant us hope? For our children's sake and for your name as they come back in. For your name's sake and for the next generation, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.